This is the Shift Podcast. We're one step closer to getting back to the moon. Andrew C. Ferrara explains what NASA has achieved with its Orion mission this past weekend, pretty big deal, and why this is the first shot in the next race to the moon. The greatest acoustic guitar in the world, get this, was built right here in Canada by some underdogs. Mike Miltimore, owner of Riversong Guitars in Kamloops, tells us more about how his guitar beat out the competition and what it takes to make the most decorated guitar in the world. And are you okay with the Grinch? That is all available on our podcast. Uh, It was a really big day. If you're into space, well, I should even say big week. Artemis 1, which uh, is NASA's baby right now, splashed down in the Pacific Ocean a little bit earlier today. And that is a big deal because not only did it travel more than a million miles through space, orbiting the moon, collecting data, all that stuff, but it made it back to Earth safely. And that's a good thing. But what does that actually mean? And why should we be engaged with a topic like this? Well, let's go to Andrew C. Ferreira, kind enough to join me on the shift this morning. Andrew Ferreira is weird. So weird, he loves science more than sleep and other people. It's time for Andrew Ferreira's Weird Science. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing good, Rob. How are you? I'm okay. I I get excited about this stuff, and I don't know if it's the, quote, nerd in me, but to see that we're starting to explore and that it's not just Elon talking Mars and cohabitating the red planet, but, like, tangible, viable NASA back in the game, going up to space, checking out on the moon, to me, it's a big deal. But what does it mean having the splashdown and and, and getting to work now? Well, I mean, uh, first of all, I would hope that literally everyone listening is interested because what we've just seen is the opening salvo of the new race for the moon, right? This is the opening shot. Um, What comes next is highly contingent on what NASA finds within its Orion capsule. Um, And now before we go any further, I always like to point this out. Uh, whenever you watch like the Artemis mission launches, it's always, you know, uh, you could imagine picture here, uh, a college football stadium full of uh, of bulk freshmen chanting USA uh, at every single moment <laughs> they can during one of these launches. But the Orion capsule, the actual little uh, uh, pyramid-looking spacecraft doohickey uh, that the astronauts will be sitting in was made by the Europeans. Don't tell them. Ooh. It's, act- it's a European Space Agency uh, product, if you will. Um, so it is truly an international effort, despite what some of the the, the hosts and everything will try to make you think. They did make the rocket, the big old explodey boomstick. Um, so obviously that's good credit to them. But what really happens now is, an, is a detailed analysis of the data from this mission. Uh, we do know there were actually several problems um, during its 25-ish day mission. Uh, it lost communication unexpectedly a couple of times. There were some technical faults that they were able to resolve uh, in situ. Uh, that didn't end up causing any problems. But all of this is stuff that NASA is going to want to take a good, long, hard look at. Uh, Because the very next flight for this is called Artemis II, a kind of boring name, uh, but that is what it is. And Artemis II is scheduled for, um, and this is one of my favorite kind of uh, space news terms, uh, no earlier than 2024. You always hear (laughs) no later than here. Um, No, you know, at work, it's like, I need this submitted no later than end of day. but in space news, it's no earlier than, and it's no earlier than early 2024. 
uh, because they have to go through and make sure that all of the electronic equipment uh, is fully functional. Uh, and in some cases, they're going to have to take entire chunks of the avionics equipment out of the vehicle to test it, refurbish, and then place it back in. And this is an incredibly time-intensive uh, process. So Artemis II is in about two years, hopefully. And that will be the first real exchange uh, when it comes to the space race again, because that'll be uh, the first manned, or I should say crewed mission uh, around the moon, not to the moon, or around the moon, uh, since the Apollo days of the early 1970s. So a lot really does ride on the analysis of the data after it uh, splashed down uh, earlier. Can we talk about the timing of this? I know that they've been looking at this for a couple of years and they, you know, I, I want to talk two things. I want to talk about budgets because it ain't cheap oh. to send people to space. Oh. And this one, if memory serves me correct, significantly over budget. And further to that, was NASA's hand forced because the private sector is starting to, you know, throw stuff into space that sticks as well. I, I guess we could take either fork in the road, but let's talk dollars and cents and let's talk about the pressure that NASA was feeling. So uh, I want to talk about the pressure here because the pressure to me is really fascinating. Um, now, in order to do a little bit of backstory here, what we call Artemis and this SLS, the Space Launch System, which is essentially just uh, a rebooted version of the Saturn V. Hollywood's all about reboots, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so is NASA. So basically, we're using a lot of Saturn uh, V Apollo era technology that's just been up spec to now. Um, and this is due in large part to, uh, and this is the case with all government administrations and all government agencies, um, you know, everything from, I remember before the break, I was listening to a bit about ICBC uh, over British Columbia to everything uh, up as big as NASA, right? Um, the original idea for this mission was to think of a new kind of rocket architecture from the ground up. Uh, and this was floated uh, in front of the Obama administration in the uh, early 2010s. Um, oh, it's so weird to say that. It makes it sound like it was forever ago. Yes, um, I know. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> and it was floated at that time. And due to budgetary concerns, the Obama administration actually canceled it. Uh, there was a lot of backlash from NASA. And so the Obama administration then kind of said, okay, fine, we'll, we'll let you build this. We'll let you give you the billions of dollars you need for this. But you have to cut costs quite literally almost everywhere you can. Um, and so what we have right now is essentially a... Uh, it's 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 too harsh to call it lipstick on a pig, but it's very much a disappointment in some ways because we do look at what private firms like SpaceX, uh, Boeing, Starliner, uh, and other organizations are accomplishing uh, with private funding and private uh, investors. Um, and what NASA is doing is, don't get me wrong, absolutely fantastic and it's thrilling, uh, but it is kind of disappointing in the fact that we could have so much more. Uh, and you look at all of the billions of dollars and I'm not sure on the figures here, um, but I do know it is well into the billions of dollars to get this program going. Um, and really everything really did hinge on this first launch. Uh, if that rocket blew up on the pad, for instance, uh, right before it took off, or if it, they left it out in the middle of a hurricane, um, if that rocket sustained critical damage in that this might have scuttled the entire SLS program, and it may have completely rewritten the entire Artemis mission, which will eventually lead to Artemis 3. Uh, and Artemis 3 is scheduled for 2025-ish. Uh, and this is when we really start looking uh, at putting people back on the moon. So the pressure for NASA to launch this thing 
uh, is truly immense because they see SpaceX and Boeing and Electron and all of these other small launch satellite companies knocking on the door, taking away contracts. And I think NASA sees the writing on the wall. Uh, the, the progress from the private sector and the rocket architecture and hardware is so insanely fast that I think NASA has consigned itself to being more of a knowledge supplier than a hardware provider for Correct. a lot of missions that aren't the big ones to like the moon or Mars or further. So, Andrew, I was reading a little bit earlier. I think I read it somewhere. Maybe it was NBC News. And they were talking with somebody. And, and I just want to see if I've connected the dots right here. So NASA actually works with SpaceX. Matter of fact, they pay SpaceX billions. And you had mentioned briefly NASA's Artemis three. Correct me if I'm wrong here. And, and again, this was just paraphrasing from the article that I was reading. Artemis 3 essentially sends the astronauts and their cargo up into space, but then they will transfer to, I guess, what's called the SpaceX lander, and that lander is what is actually going to find its way to the moon. So I, I find it fascinating if I have connected those dots properly because you're essentially looking at, you know, uh, one that's government-funded, one that's private, but everybody's working together to kind of hop, skip, and jump to land on the moon again. That's exactly right. So what you're seeing um, at uh, it's Boca Chica in Texas um, is the ongoing, and this is one of the fascinating things about SpaceX, um, is that you see their engineering process, their tried and true, it's real trial and error process, live unfolding from legions of people who have cameras set up there. Um, you can watch them try to pump you know, rockets full of fuel and watch them blow up on the pad. And then two weeks later, a brand new one is out there. Mm. It's a complete mock-up. But it's interesting to see this process. And so with Artemis 3, they're going to be uh, transferring the crew uh, to what's called the Starship. And that's what's being tested in Texas right now. Uh, the Starship is going to be launched separately. Um, and so it's interesting that that first kind of landing on the moon, NASA's essentially given up on trying to find something that will make that happen uh, within their fold. Now, of course, everything with Starship is going to be vetted you know, to the highest possible levels. Uh, SpaceX doesn't mess around. Uh, and, you know, they're trusted with not only this mission, but of course, right now, they are America's line to the International Space Station. Uh, with the ongoing conflict in Russia, if we still had to rely on the Russian Soyuz launches, there might be a problem there. So really, SpaceX is almost one of these first kind of legs on the ground uh, in NASA's kind of, I think, where they're going is being the the knowledge and expertise provider, whereas the companies like SpaceX and, of course, you've got Boeing and others are kind of lining themselves up to be the recipients, the foot soldiers, if you want to put it that way. Uh, for this new space race. Okay, Andrew, not to cut you off, but let's let's cut to the chase because I, I also want to talk about China in the equation. Oh, but, yeah. Um, what is the, what's the big deal? Like, why, what is so big about getting back to the moon? Is it, is it just so that you could put your flag into the dust or is there something there that we're missing? There's a lot. Uh, first of all, it is prestige. Let's not kid anyone. The original, moon, the original race for the moon was very much a, a part of the Cold War. And this new race to the moon is very much a soft power projection, right? This is very much going to be a race between uh, the West uh, and China right now, as it looks. India is also playing a large part uh, in this as well. Uh, second of all is the potential for resource extraction on the moon. There's not a whole lot in the moon that we don't really have here on Earth, but there is enough there, especially in something called helium-3, that makes the prospect of it very exciting. 
Third thing is science. We can do a whole lot of space science, cosmology, and astronomy on the moon that we cannot do on Earth, like building gigantic, crazy radio dishes to do radio astronomy. Uh, and the fourth thing is, I think people are realizing that we are long overdue for a visit back to the moon. If you look at people from the 60s and 70s, they were predicting that by the year 2000, we might have moon bases. Uh, and here we are in 2022. Uh, and I struggle to leave my apartment when four centimeters of snow is on the ground in Vancouver. Um, so, you know, I, I think it, it, it's this melting pot of so many different things that's finally coming to a head with this push from the private sector. They're saying, OK, we're seeing that the government is a little bit slow on it. We're going to really, you know, pop some nitrous and get in there. Uh, and that's what we're seeing is this combination of things. Oh, and of course, it's a all a setup to get us to Mars. And that mm -hmm. is obviously the final goal with this set of missions. To the person that would say, why won't we focus more on what we have here on this planet? And and I'm not just talking about surface stuff. I mean, I, I always laugh when I realize how little we actually know about the planet that we're on. I mean, beneath the water is, you know, miles and miles and miles of just stuff. I mean, that sounds really, you know, dumb by saying it that way. But, I mean, we're going to the moon to kick some dust around so that we could put some radio towers up there maybe. But the reality is, is we don't know much about our own planet. Uh, am I missing this? Because maybe it's just hot magma in the middle of this world. But I, I feel like there's stuff that we could probably still uncover here. Maybe not the thing that you say to a space nerd, quote unquote, but definitely something that I think we can't just sweep off to the side. No, and one of my favorite things that I like to tell people is that we know more about the surface of Mars than we do of what's in our oceans. Yes. Um, and that's just a, a patent fact. Now, the value of space exploration goes well beyond the pretty pictures that we get. Um, Velcro. You know Velcro? We all love Velcro. Uh, sometimes I wish that adult shoes were good about Velcro. <laughs> sometimes I'm that lazy. Mm -hmm. um, but without the space program, we would not have Velcro. Right, that's just one thing. Uh, we're starting to test the production of pharmaceuticals in microgravity aboard the space station because there are certain crystalline structures in certain medications. One of them is a potential cancer treatment uh, that can only be formed really in microgravity, right? So in pharmaceuticals and everyday life, and of course, in the technology that we use, the technology that goes into these crazy, crazy things that launch into space and come back down, all of this unlike other parts of the economy, does trickle down, right? All of this does come down to us. We do benefit from this. Every little thing that we learn about space as well, in a philosophical sense, uh, connects all of us uh, to the universe. And I always like to say this line uh, because I feel like it encapsulates a lot of how I feel here. Um, but Carl Sagan uh, once said that we are the cosmos's way of knowing itself. And I think that in itself should be good enough reason to invest in something like this, because at the end of the day, uh, materially, technologically, financially, like asteroid mining, we might be better off after all of this. But what we can learn about our place in the universe, where we are, where we come from and where we're going, I feel uh, has a great potential to really unify a lot of us. Uh, we saw what happened with the first moon landings. The world essentially came together in that time. And perhaps this is what exactly we need. Uh, things are starting to get really polarized and have been for years and years and years. Uh, and maybe we really do need something quite literally beyond this earth uh, to bring us all together. Well, the one thing that I find myself wasting far more time on my phone than I should, and I need a bigger screen to do this, is I can't stop staring at the images that come back from the James Webb Space Telescope. 
it, it blows my mind. I mean, it seems like every week or two, something gets released and you're just like, get lost. And I know that it's great to physically put a boot on a planet or a boot on a rock or, you know, whatever you want to call the moon. But man, just realizing what is out there beyond what we thought what was out there is so intoxicating. And I hope that the younger generation, when they start to see what's out there, keep the interest. And it's not just, you know, again, like I mentioned earlier, which flag can get into the dust first, but I want people to dream big and explore. And and I feel like this is as big a tool as anything that we have right now to to engage the next generation. And, you know, you put it there perfectly, right? This is all about keeping things for those who come after us. I always like to talk about how, for many of us, the Hubble Space Telescope were our eyes into the universe. Mm-hmm. For, you know, kids going up through school right now, it's no longer the Hubble, right? It's now the JWST. We've got a brand new set of eyes. Uh, and I think that that's well worth the investment. Uh, mind you, the James Webb was hilariously over budget and hilariously late. But look at the fit. Look at the uh, the photos. It's, it's bringing worth back. it. It's worth it. It is worth it. <laughs> and I found some figures for you, and I'll leave you with these figures. Yes. The uh, the SLS uh, per launch, uh, its cost is about four billion dollars. She was per launch. Per launch. Do you want to know how much the U.S. is the SpaceX's Falcon Nine is per launch? These Love these to. are completely different. Uh, vehicles. Hmm. Um, but it's still a completely astonishing comparison. The SLS is a big heavy lift vehicle. Uh, Falcon 9 is medium. So SLS is at $4 billion per launch. Um, Falcon 9 is at $67 million. Oh, well, that's, I mean, that is almost self-explanatory. There you go. Huh. I appreciate you digging up those numbers. That's a great way to finish because I think that's something that we could probably uh, chew on this week. And next time we have you on, we could definitely circle back on that because that is, that's a big difference. Yep. Wow. A, wow. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> what are we talking about? 30, That that's, unless I'm completely brutal at math, isn't that like 30 launches of the Falcon for every SLS? At least. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Thank you for this. This was a great conversation, Andrew. I appreciate you getting me up to speed on this. And I know uh, all the shift heads out there are probably agreeing that this was uh, a neat conversation to have in a very great week for space. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Rob. No Always problem. Nice chat. This is the Shift Podcast. Welcome back to The Shift. I'm Rob Faith filling in for Shane Hewitt. And uh, boy, I tell you what, I come from a family of musicians and I am the one guy in the family that just cannot tinkle the ivories. I cannot strum the chords. I can't do anything. So I'm always enamored when I cross paths with somebody who can do it or is at least in the world of music. I find it to be something that I'm just so envious of, but at the same time, just want to learn. So who better to talk to than Mike Miltimore? When it comes to the art of making guitars, now you're saying, Rob, why would I want to worry about making guitars? Well, Mike is in fine company right now. Family-run British Columbia business beating out some pretty big names to win Acoustic Guitar of the Year. Mike's kind enough to join me. Mike, congratulations. How are you tonight? Uh, you know, it's it's always sunny in Camlips, but it's even sunnier these days. I want to walk through this because, I, first of all, I want to talk about your passion for music. What got you into it? And then I want to get into the art of making guitars because obviously it is something that uh, a lot of people around the world take pride in and you are hanging out with some pretty big names. But what got you into it? 
Uh, you know, I started uh, when I was uh, like a preteen, basically working in our family's music store because the, the store predates me. Um, and I, I would come into the shop with my dad and, and my job was to take apart guitars. When you have little uh, gears for the tuning machine heads and, and little strap buttons and, and knobs and all that kind of stuff, uh, I would take all those apart and I'd organize them into like little trays. Uh, so when customers would come into our family music store, uh, we'd be able to service and repair their parts. It was kind of like a, a junkyard for guitars. Um, and that's really where I started to develop a passion for guitars and innovation and evolution of guitars. So when you look at it, when you first started, obviously you're breaking down the components of a guitar. You're learning all the nuts and bolts. I would assume the same way a surgeon learns the body or the autonomy of a human. But I would say that it's a rare person that falls in love with something like that. Was it something you saw your dad do, your uncle do? What What was the binding between you and making this something you do your whole life? Uh, you know, I, I feel like um, I always loved being around the music store. My, my dad started it in our um, in a garage in our backyard. So even when I was a little kid, he'd have musicians coming uh, to and fro all the time. He'd be fixing their gear. He, he's a sound engineer. So we'd be doing sound for bands. I can remember being way too young and falling asleep against cable cases and cables uh, at an idolized concert in the 80s, if you can remember those guys. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, I, I think what it is is when you're surrounded by cool people and you're doing something that seems kind of cool, you want to be involved with it. And I loved um, how there were no rules with, with building guitars, uh, especially back in the 60s and 70s. Um, everybody was trying to make something that had never existed before in electric guitar anyways. Acoustic guitars have been around since 1842. The, the modern day acoustic guitar was actually originally patented in 1842. So uh, they've remained relatively unchanged, uh, but for the most part, I, I just like uh, innovation. I, I'm, I'm the guy that looks at something and goes, could that be better? And how do I take that apart? How does that work? You know, that's, uh, that's who I am. So one of the success stories, I think a part of the reason that you and I came together tonight is that your business beat out some pretty big names to win the Acoustic Guitar of the Year Award. When you first start submitting your guitars up against some of the big names and some of the people that have been doing this for generations. Are you intimidated? Are you excited? Are you a little bit of everything? Well, uh, yeah. So it's funny back in 2006, when we decided to start building guitars, it was because the, uh, the other bigger brands wouldn't sell to us in our family music store and we couldn't get those higher end guitars. So one day we went to see a movie. I, I paid for my entire staff to go see this movie. And it was epic. If you remember 2006, you'll obviously remember this movie, Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. we went, we watched that and we left there being like, man, we have to build guitars. Uh, so that's, we went out literally the next day. I went and bought uh, the cheapest table saw I could find, the cheapest band saw, the cheapest uh, planer, sander. Uh, I spent $3,000 and uh, we were building guitars. So in, in answer to your question, do I uh, feel intimidated? Uh, you know what? My first guitars I'm most proud of um, because we were doing something that nobody else was doing. Uh, were they perfect? Far from it. Uh, but uh, it, it was a passion and, and we were doing domestic woods. I really wanted to be 
100% domestic woods. I, I, I wanted to build something that was different. I was trying to make my, my altruistic goal was to build a braceless guitar. So I knew I had to take the tension off of the top so that it can resonate more. So I started making my necks run all the way through the inside to the back end of the guitar. And that's when I realized a lot of things, we can minimize the bracing on the top, but we could also adjust the angle of the neck. So all of a sudden I was like, I've got something, this is different. And the entire time that I was going, there was a lot of traditionalists that would say, why are you even bothering doing this? One of, one of the guys that worked for me said, uh, the only reason I'm helping you is because you're paying me. And I said, that's okay, can you do this? <laughs> But at the end of the day, uh, I had a, a, a drive and a vision to try to create something different. Uh, and once it happened, I was proud to show the world. And, you know, it's the, the big competitors out there. They were excited for me because they were doing something innovative when they started too. do you find that there was a moment where you put your guitar into somebody's hands and they just had a look in their eye that said, you've nailed it like you've got it and it doesn't have to be like a big celebrity but a guy that you trust or a woman that you trust where they picked it up and said man you've got it you know uh i had a moment happen at the grand Ole opry uh in, okay. in nashville we were at a trade show uh i'm the bdc business development bank of canada has really helped me out a lot with advice consulting and even helping me build my first factory um but the uh one of the pieces of advice they gave me was their marketing director i said because i was up for young entrepreneur of the year back then for canada and i said what do i need to do to make the most uh, of this contest and, and and these awards and she told me you have to be shameless and uh I've, i you know what nobody's going to be a bigger brand ambassador than yourself uh so i'm in nashville uh, at a trade show and um you know, most people sit at a trade show and, and wait for people to come and talk to them. And uh, I'm the kind of guy that jumps out in front of people. I'll be sitting there trying to, you know, balancing a guitar, like, hey, check this out. Uh, <laughs> want to see this, you know? And, and I jumped out in front of these two dudes and, uh, and I said, hey, you guys guitar players? They said, no. And I said, well, you know, guitar players. And I started to go on my elevator pitch of my guitar design. And uh, they were intrigued and they, they, uh, they took my card and they left. I got a text uh, about 10 minutes later and they said, we want you to be our guest uh, backstage at the Grand Ole Opry. And I didn't know who they were. And they said, oh, and bring a guitar. So I, I went there that night, you know, Grand Ole Opry is a pretty famous place. And, and uh, the, uh, I went up to the front desk and where they said to go and they said, oh yes, I, I can't even remember their names. That's how terrible it is. But they said, oh, they've been waiting for you. So I went around the back with my guitar and they said, hey, uh, Michael, check out this guy. And, and it was uh, Michael Spriggs. And um, I showed him my guitar. And that was the beginning of it all. We ended up having our guitar on the Grand Ole Opry that night. And, and I was allowed to sit side stage, take pictures. And I was like, this is amazing. I would say that that's a pretty defining moment. There, I just walking in there would probably be intimidating for me. Yes, I, yeah. I, I, I'm glad that you brought a guitar with you because I want our listeners tonight to be able to hear it. And again, the, we're going to only be able to use the sound sensory for these folks that are listening tonight. But Mike, I, I, I think acoustic for me, and I know a lot of people have an ear for electric and all the different varieties that are out there. Acoustic to me is the one that resonates with my ear the best. It's something that as soon as I hear the strum, I'm like, I'm, I want to hear more. So I know you've got one with you. You've already told me that you're not a, you know, a, an expert at this, but 
would you mind playing us even just a you know 15 20 seconds of something you got so that we can hear what you're talking about i don't mind playing something for you but what you should do is end the show with uh, a buddy of mine michael herms from uh, portland oregon he wrote a song called river song he was so um enamored with his river song guitar and it's uh, it's a fantastic song so um but uh, I'll, I'll just play a, a few little uh, little ditty things on my guitar here hopefully it comes through with the uh, the zoom call it's so full do you know what i mean like i'm not just saying that because you're here i just think there's something really velvety about it yes yeah so what a lot of people say is that our guitars are very balanced and because of our unique unique design um our neck and this is something that uh one of the guys said backstage at the grand Ole opry he said your guitar chimes up all the way up the neck and what I, I didn't realize at the time is that what he was talking about was the resonance of the guitar is even and balanced. Um, this is how our guitar is built on the inside with the uh, neck coming down solid all the way down to the last fretboard. But what ends up happening is you've got a perfectly balanced neck outside and inside of the guitar that resonates like a tuning fork. Um, when I compare that up with a traditional neck, they tend to dampen resonances within the body. So although I didn't go out to create that, that was just a happy accident from what I was trying to create, which was a guitar that required less bracing. I find it to be so complex, but the way that you speak, it just seems like it's such a part of your DNA at this point. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I love guitars. Uh, my dad and I, in the late 80s, we would make... Uh, what Eddie Van Halen referred to as Frankenstrats, where you'd take this body and this neck and you'd meld them together and you'd put these pickups in and you'd wire it and you'd do all this. Uh, and we'd even go and get local artists to paint guitars. One time we had a, a guitar painted with a, with a dragon on it. Gail <laughs> Thomas painted it. And it was a fantastic dragon. Um, and she did like oil paintings and stuff like that. And, and that's just, that's the thing with guitar. It's more than just a box with strings. It, it, it means something. Every time you look at a guitar, why does it exist? Why did somebody build it? Uh, and what does it sound like? Those are all inspiring things. And that's, uh, that's what I love about guitar. It's, it's that uh, you can't quantify that part of it, but every guitar speaks and has its own voice. He is Mike Miltimore from River Song Guitars in Kamloops, British Columbia. Uh, Mike, a few more questions for you. I, I, I just want to say that once you establish something, and I know this from the field of work that I'm in, People immediately want to copy it and people want to do it for cheaper. And, and we can get into trademarks, copyright sets for another day. What <laughs> yeah, sets you guys, <laughs> I can imagine. What sets you guys apart from the, the, the cheaper ones that are going to obviously try and come knock you off? Well, you know, I think uh, innovation, um, we, we do get copied. Uh, we had a, a premier guitar magazine came up to us and said, hey, 
five years ago, I was in your booth at the NAM show, the big industry trade show. And what I saw in your booth, everybody's doing now. Does that mean what you're doing in your booth now, everybody's going to be doing in five years? And I looked at, I don't know, uh, we just do our very best. So when you're in, in an innovation kind of uh, mode, uh, you just keep getting things better and better and better. And people that will copy you, they may not understand. Uh, they might copy what you did yesterday, but the stuff you're working on today and working on tomorrow um, is stuff that they can't copy. They may not understand. Like Iron Man, when they're up in the spacesuit, Iron Man suit way up, and he goes, how did you deal with the oxygen problem? And, and what oxygen? Ah, you know, <laughs> that is uh, the whole thing. And even though I've actually licensed our guitar design out to other manufacturers, uh, part of our design, uh, it still took three years for them with my guidance and coaching to bring out the product that was proper. So it's, it's not easy. It took us six years to develop it. Um, and um, people are going to copy, but, you know, uh, we just keep doing our thing. What is next? I mean, you tease that everybody's playing catch up, so to speak, and that's fine and dandy. You got to have something else up your sleeve now, because I would imagine going up and getting an award of that stature only fuels the fire. We are. So this is the exciting thing. That guitar is um, is our road warrior guitar. It's our guitar built for the working musician. It's it's. I designed it so that you'd go to an arena, to uh, to a cafe, to your house, to your cabin. All these different humidities and how you treat that guitar. I built it to be uh, rugged and be your Excalibur. That that guitar that you're going to take out with you and battle and and just play and it's going to rock for you. Um, we have a series we call the G2 series, which is derived from our custom shop. So we have uh, like our custom shop, I'm working on a double neck flying V acoustic guitar. It's crazy. But our custom shop does really weird and crazy things. And I like to do weird and crazy things. Mm. And those things that stick that are um, that work really well that people are interested in, we put them into our G2 series, which becomes our um, kind of our, our, our studio guitars, our, our custom shop, regular guitars kind of a thing. So we've developed things like skeletized bracing, where we put holes in all the bracing to make it lighter. It's just common sense stuff. Um, we also work with, um, with an oud manufacturer from the Middle East who invented a uh, double reaction bridge for an oud, which is an 11-string fretless uh, instrument that predates the guitar 4,000 years. And we developed it for the acoustic guitar and we're working on uh, 3d printing these crazy insane bridges um so you know between that between our guitar design between our um, new electronics that we got coming out because we're also doing electronics uh and i've got new things happening all the time i think we're we're ready to, to rock it to uh to challenge the next guy for the next contest you might have the coolest job in the world I love my, you know, what? interesting point. I've, because it's a family business, I've actually never, I had another job and uh, I've always worked with, with my parents, now with my parents, but uh, before it was for my parents. And uh, yeah, I, I, I love what I do. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm going to keep you just for one or two more questions because I'm just so fascinated by it. I'm having Talk lots of fun. I got all night. Good. Well, I might take some of it. Um, Talk to me about the relationship between you and your father, because you know, obviously he had his train of thought. You come in with your train of thought. You've got different ideas. He's got traditional ideas or, you know, walk me through that, you know, that collaboration, which has obviously brought 
river song to this unique level? My dad is uh, is my hero. My dad, uh, obviously, you know, your dad's your hero kind of thing. But um, I'm a clone of my dad. Uh, I, I was made literally to work in the family music store. Mike, like a microphone, except my mom had the good sense to call me Michael. Um, my dad um, invents things and builds things and creates things nonstop. And he's always uh, doing miracle. He calls them miracle repairs. You know, things that everybody just writes off. You all have a look at that and, and he can fix it. Um, that's what I grew up with. Uh, the, the whole idea of, uh, you know, just because somebody else has done it doesn't mean that it's perfected. Why don't we try to take it a step further and, and, and make it better? So um, I wholeheartedly took on the, the job working with my dad because uh, I loved what he was doing. And he's a great guy. He's my best friend. He was my be- uh, in my wedding party at my uh, wedding, you know, and, and uh, we hang out and work every day together. Uh, even though he's kind of semi-retired now, uh, I still talk to him every day. And uh, he is still working on guitar designs and, uh, and sending me ideas. And, and uh, we work together as an amazing team. I think that's fantastic. It's, so, it's such a cool dynamic to learn a little bit about. Mike, before I let you go, you got one guitar. You got the best guitar you've ever put together. Your Excalibur, if you will. Name one musician you would love to see that Excalibur in their hands. Oh, one musician. There are so many musicians that really inspire me. Um, I've been able to uh, chat with a lot of them. Um, but my, this is going to come out really crazy, but uh when I was building uh, my guitars and originally designing them, there was a guy named Monty Montgomery. And Monty Montgomery was one of the top 50 musicians, guitarists of all time from Guitar Player Magazine. Hmm. And uh, he, I always thought when I was building it, what would Monty need in a guitar? So I built it. Uh, and, and then I emailed him and said, hey, Monty, I don't know if you get your emails or not, but this is what I've done. So I've actually built him a guitar and he's had it in his hands and we've gone for barbecue in Texas together. But I think outside of him, um, which he does play one of our guitars, uh, it's going to be uh, Nuno Betancourt from Extreme. Uh, I just love his playing style. Even though it's an electric guitar playing style, I think his uh, songs and his solos and, and what he does has passion and, and uh, an amazing um, feel to, to what he's doing. So uh, probably him, I'd love to get him one of our guitars and have him uh, write some cool new acoustic stuff. Not more than word stuff, but some of his more intricate rock stuff. As soon as he said extreme, I'm like, I knew exactly where I was when I first heard them. It's That's my era, so you're speaking to me. <laughs> there's Taylor, there's Gibsons, there's Fender, there's Yamaha, the usual suspects, but now we add River Song to the names of the Iconics. Uh, Mike, what a pleasure to meet you tonight. And um, I'd love to call on you once again, because I, I love talking to you. And I think the way you speak to your dad, it speaks volumes of who you are. And uh, congratulations. What an honor. We're all so beyond excited here. My entire team. Like, you know, I'd like to say one thing real quick. Mm-hmm. My uh, Kamloops, I don't know. Have you ever been to Kamloops? I have, yeah. Okay, so my, the city of Kamloops, the, the people of Kamloops, they bring people to our factory and say, have you seen River Song guitars? And they're always bringing their guests in for tours and, and that kind of a thing. A Rocky Mountaineer is super supportive. Like, 
the entire community. So when we got this award, uh, it, it's it's not just an award for River Song guitars or, or our family music store Lee's music. It's a an award for all of our supporters in the community and uh, and for small town Canada. So um, it's it's super super exciting. I would imagine that, like I said, once once they meet you, they're going to have a vested interest in you. I mean, I, I I was brought up and you buy the person as much as you buy the product. <laughs> and I think when you've got passion, you got heart and you celebrate your own community, even the way you describe building your guitars, you want to build them Canadian, you want to build them British Columbian. I think that counts. And I think a lot of people invest themselves in people that they believe in. And uh, I can... Even in just a few minutes of talking with you, I can understand why you've got the support in Kamloops that you've got. I appreciate your time tonight. Yeah, it was great talking to you. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with the Grinch? Yeah, I like the Grinch. I like the the kind of the whole vibe of the story of... uh, you know, a grouch on Christmas, having the heart grow three sizes. I kind of like it as one of those old school animated movies. I think it's a good classic rewatchable Christmas sort of story. But my favorite adaptation of The Grinch is Jim Carrey's and the sheer chaos that is that performance and ridiculousness of it and timelessness of it. So yeah, I'm. I, I I like the Grinch. Grinch is fun. It's a good Christmassy thing. I'm with you. The Grinch is considered by some to be Christmas's most evil character. He's yep. best known as the main character way back in 1957, the old children's book on how the Grinch stole Christmas. He is also, though, known as a straight-up social deviant. Two staple characters of the holiday season started fighting at a Christmas party over the weekend. Friday night, Traverse City Police were called to Hotel Indigo for reports of a fight during a work Christmas party. According to Captain Keith Gillis, a 30-year-old man dressed as the Grinch was punching a 30-year-old man dressed as a reindeer. Well, the Grinch was arrested for assault. Officers are unsure what led to the fight, but believe alcohol may have accelerated it. May have. (laughs) I'm sure it did. (laughs) (laughs) Christmas parties are wild enough. Adding Grinch costumes and booze is just a guaranteed fight. I can honestly say in all of the Christmas parties I've been to, I've never, ever thought to get in a fist fight or a slap fight or dress up as a reindeer or the Grinch. We're not sure if this man's heart grew three sizes since the fight, but we are sure that the old Bacardi and the Grinch simply do not mix. So please, if you're going to, carol responsibly. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 